The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. As a businesswoman, I focus on the numbers. The numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, and then helps to prioritize the necessary changes. And when we look at health care, there are a lot of numbers. The cost of American health care is nearly twice that of any other nation on earth. Today, the United States spends $3 trillion, trillion with a T, a year. And that's, that's about the size of the entire federal budget. That's about $10,000 a person. It's about one-third of total federal government spending on Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, marketplace subsidies, veterans' health care, and medical research. And yet, and yet, the United States ranks dead last in life expectancy for men and women, uh, and I'm sorry, second in to last for women, and dead last in infant mortality, and that's unacceptable. We're fortunate to have as our guest again today Dr. Robert Pearl, the author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. During our um, uh, popular April 1st podcast, uh, broadcast, Dr. Pearl explained what's, dividing, what's driving the cost of health care at several times general inflation. And at the end of that hour, we previewed today's discussion focusing on what needs to happen to improve those numbers. Dr. Pearl is the right person to have this discussion with us. He's the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group and the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. <clears throat> In those roles, he's led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and East Coasts. Recently named one of modern healthcare's 50 most in influential physician leaders, Pearl is an advocate for the power of, the, of integrated, prepaid, technically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. He serves as a clinical professor of, of plastic surgery at the Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of Stanford's world-famous Graduate School of Business where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership. In 2017, he wrote Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, which is a Washington Post bestseller that offers us a roadmap for transforming American healthcare. 
all proceeds from that book benefit Doctors Without Borders. <clears throat> from, from 2012 to 2017, Dr. Pearl served as chairman of the Council of Accountable Physician Practices, which includes the nation's largest and best multi-specialist medical groups and has participated in the bipartisan congressional task force on, the, on delivery system reform and healthcare IT in Washington, D.C. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to continue our conversation. The listening audience was excited about your return. Good morning, Joyce. How are Good you? To be here. Yeah. I'm excellent. Thank you so much. In April, we did a high-level diagnosis of what America's healthcare system is, why it, <clears throat> and why it's failing by every measurement. Those are issues about who gets to make decisions, where those, de those decisions are made, how treatment decisions are made, et cetera. And I thought maybe a quick review of that diagnosis would be a good place to start this morning. <clears throat> so the book was written from a recognition of the facts that you presented, that we spend more than 50% additional funding of the GDP compared to every other nation in the world, and yet our results are at the bottom. And at the same time, you ask people, how is American health care? 76% will say it's the best in the world when there's not a shred of evidence that says that's true. I speak in the book, and we spoke in April about my dad, Jack Pearl, a World War II hero, a very successful man who died from a medical error when his physicians didn't recognize that the important preventive vaccine that he needed after his spleen was taken out had not been administered. After it happens to my dad, who has two sons who are physicians, it can happen to everyone in this nation. If you look at the fact that a couple hundred thousand people die every year from medical errors and the number is going up, not down, an additional 100 or 200,000 failures in prevention Add another 100,000 avoidable complications of chronic disease. We're talking about almost a half million people dying unnecessarily in the nation that spends so much more than anyone else in health care. And yet we don't recognize that. And when I talk a lot in the book we spoke about last time, how in examples like the Stanford Prison Experiment, where Zimbardo takes students, half get divided into jailers, half jailees. And within 48 hours, the jailers, all of whom know intellectually that the jailees are just other students, they start seeing them as hardened criminals, imposing demeaning tasks, making them clean toilet bowls with their bare hands. And the jailees see the jailers, so they also know, are just students as people who are going to inflict improper and inappropriate punishment, and so they board up the doors, and within six days, the whole experiment ends. And that, along with modern brain scanning that we talked about, show that context shapes perception and changes behavior. It's not facts. We talked about one in three physicians who fail to wash their hands between patient rooms. We talked about knowledgeable individuals, former presidents, who go to the hospitals and doctors 
where the data shows the complication rate is the highest, yet they go there anyway because the context of marbled walls or a big fancy name shifts the perception much more than the data. And we concluded by talking about the roadmap to the future, the four pillars that based upon this context of context, shaping perception and changing behavior, how integration, doctors working together as one, large multi-specialty medical groups are gonna outperform every single time individual physicians in primary care or specialty areas. Doctors who work together and collaborate, see each other as teammates, not competitors. And when that happens, people like my dad don't fall through the the cracks because they work together to share information. The second thing is how they are paid. And this is really important, Joyce. Paying physicians on a fee-for-service basis simply increase the volume, not the outcomes. A lot of data about that. The things that would save lives don't get rewarded in the way that high-cost interventions are. And the context of getting paid on a fee-for-service basis makes you simply do more, not better. Intervention becomes more important than prevention. Number three is technology. And in technology, we talked about various things, particularly the electronic health record, that makes people aware of what needs to happen. Had my dad's physicians shared a common record, they would have known he hadn't gotten the vaccine. They all would have given it to him. They knew he needed it. They just didn't know that he hadn't gotten it. They all assumed that someone else had done it. That context shaped the perception and changed the behavior. And other technology, technology that we demand in the rest of our lives, things like video, things like data analytics, artificial intelligence, things that could save hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And the most common way that doctors communicate in the United States today is facts. In my classes at Stanford Graduate School of Business, I have to explain to the students what a fax is. They've never seen a fax. <laughs> and that is how the most advanced 21st century medicine uses technology. And then finally, physician leadership. And I emphasize it's not that leadership by others is not very important. It is. If you want to change behaviors, you've got to have physicians leading it because that's the only context that physicians will have the trust to make it happen. So that's the roadmap to the future that we talked about based upon the experimental evidence described both in the book and we talked about it on the show. Four pillars. Integrate the care. Doctors work together particularly working together, primary care, specialty care, inpatient care. Number two, that they're going to be paid on a prepaid or capitated way. Number three, they're going to have the technology they need. And number four, the leadership. And I believe we can lower costs by as much as a third and raise quality dramatically and avoid unnecessary deaths like my dad's. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think there are a couple of other points that – we need to kind of go over with the uh, with the audience. Uh, one of the things, and I think you can help to clarify for people how this works, um, are are the third party aggregators or so called negotiators uh, between the drug manufacturer and the pharmacy where you pick up your drugs and the 
um, way in which uh, the insurance industry pays for health care for drugs that often mask uh, at the counter in low copayments um, the high cost in your premium of uh, the way in which drugs are distributed in this country. And it's a really confusing that third party. Um, aggregation, what's called um, Pharmacy Express. In fact, I, I learned this week that CVS owns one of the biggest of those, um, and how that is a major profit center, um, you know, in the drug industry. And I think that would be helpful as as the federal government looks at drug pricing as a major component of uh, cost. And you're absolutely right, Joyce. The drug industry is completely broken it is hard to imagine any place else in our entire society where we tolerate such malfeasance and the reason we do is that the largest contributors to campaigns are drug companies you've got to start with the drug companies themselves every other nation in the world the government, which, by the way, is the largest purchaser of medications for patients in the United States, negotiates prices. We're, they're prohibited. The federal government is prohibited for negotiating on behalf of the federal government. Every place else, there's going to be transparency. And there's going to be a linkage between what is paid for the total cost, and we're not yet at the intermediaries, we'll get there in a second, and outcomes. The United States is whatever the market will bear. And so what we see is drug companies purchasing other companies that are single-source providers that have had a drug around for 30 years, an antibiotic for 40 years. They do nothing except raise the price by a factor of 5 or 10, fold. Why? Because they can. You never would have this monopolistic control tolerated any place else in our society, particularly when it comes to something that is essential for human life. And yet, not only do we tolerate it, but the laws actually promote it, as they say, prevent the government from intervening. And why don't most pa patients know it? Because the, drug because the insurance companies are going to bear the cost, and it looks this is where context shapes perception, changes behavior. It looks like it's free. Why should I get upset? The drug is only going to cost me my copayment. Because the answer is it's really costing you the underlying premium if the company has to pay for the drug, especially when the drug adds little value. And it's been shown that as much as a third of these very expensive medications add little or no value to patient outcomes. And you have, and on, I want you to hold that thought because I think that's a really interesting point that a third of, of these medications that are prescribed have little or no value. But right this moment, like everybody else, we got to pay the bills. So we'll be back in about a minute with Dr. Pearl. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, Back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Dr. Robert Pearl to continue our conversation about 
what's wrong with American health care and how we can fix it. And as we went to break, Dr. Perot, we asked you, you, you brought up an incredibly important point, and, and, and that is that a third of prescriptions have little or no effect on the health of the patient. And so we need to talk for just a minute about the role of the doctor and the pharmaceutical manufacturer in creating a situation in which a third of prescription drugs probably shouldn't be prescribed. How does that happen? Well, it happens because the drug company is going to promote the drug. In some cases, like the opioid epidemic, they're going to promote it at the expense of patients because it's going to generate a large number of dollars. But you're a businesswoman. Yeah. And now imagine a business in which I tell you that if a drug you produce, let's say, is 3% better than whatever else is available, and you're going to get paid exactly the same amount of money for your drug as opposed to one that you're going to have to invest a lot of R&D dollars in that's going to be 30% better or 50% better, so you get paid exactly the same and you're a publicly traded drug company, how likely are you to make that R&D investment? And that's what the listeners and patients have to understand. There is a problem with the economics of it because there is no incentive to create that much better drugs. When you get to the question you posed before, Joyce, about the intermediaries, what's fascinating is they were put into place to negotiate between the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Now you have to ask the question again. I teach at a business school. You're a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. How are they paid? They're paid on a percent of the cost of the drug. If they negotiate a much more expensive drug that's not any better, they make more money. How do you create that kind of system? Context shapes perception, changes behavior. This is the fundamental of mistreated. Ask a contractor. Bring him into your kitchen and say, you can do whatever you want. I'll pay you time and materials. He's going to say, I'm an honest guy. I'm just going to do what's right. But what happens? What would you predict as a businesswoman? 95% of the time, he's going to do a lot more things and generate a lot more costs without a lot more value. And he's going to use growy growy fixtures where American Standard would have worked. Exactly. Or he's just going to use something that is more expensive because it's in his interest. Mm-hmm. Get the money plus the percent. So it's that it's not bad people. And I talk about this in the book all the time. Doctors are really amazingly great people. They're dedicated. They're hardworking. But in a context in which they're rewarded simply for doing more, in a context in which they're paid 100 times more, 1,000 times more for doing heart surgery, and preventing heart disease in the first place, where do you think their energy goes? And it doesn't start, it's not a conscious decision. That's why I keep talking about this brain scanning information and mistreated that I present in the book. It happens subconsciously without us knowing it. This shift in perception tells us a more expensive drug is a better drug. When you survey people, that's what you find. Put it in an expensive container, at a higher price, and people will see it as being better without any experimental data. Medicine should be scientific, Joyce. 
It's not. It's based as much around perception, financial incentives, failures in structure, lack of technology, as anything that is published in a medical journal. And so one last question about drugs. There was a time, and you and I are both old enough to remember it, when there was no drug advertising on television. And today, God, I'm so glad for pre-recorded programs that I can fast forward through the commercials. Drug commercials predominate on, let's say, the cable channels um, and in the primetime hours. And how does that advertising contribute to demand and and to the skewed pricing system of drugs. Oh, you're raising a very important point. You know, I, I run on a treadmill a lot. I'm a big runner, uh, and I often will watch the news, not just the, the cables. I'll watch just the regular stations, the regular news stations, and the most prevalent advertising is going to be for by drug companies. And why is that? Because what they can mislead a patient. They can apply that a medication is going to do so much more. I mean, do you really believe that the doctors don't know about these drugs? So why would you advertise to a patient? Of course, they couch and ask your doctor about it. But as soon as that happens, what's the doctor going to say? How can the doctor say no when the patient believes there's been context has shifted that perception? They believe that if only they take this drug, they're going to get better. But as we said, the data says that most of the time, there won't be any benefit. Some of the time, by the way, it will be a lot worse. And we have so many examples of that, which the opioid epidemic. The amazing part is the United States, the, um, the, uh, the life expectancy has gone down for the past two years. You know that? It's gone down in the United States. In no other country, no other advanced country has it gone down. Why? Because of the opioids. And how did the opioids happen? Drug manufacturers had a very expensive drug. Patients had pain. For the ones who had pain, the drugs were appropriate. But the longer you take them, the more addicted you become. And now it's not a question of pain. Now it's a question of addiction. And what did they do? They hired doctors, took them to fancy resorts, gave them speakers fees, gave them a lot of money to say two things. Number one, patients won't get addicted. There's no evidence. It's exactly the opposite. You will get addicted if you take a pain pill long enough. And number two, that if someone had in real pain, there is, you will not die from overdose. Over 50,000 people died last year from drug overdoses precipitated by the drug companies with knowledge. Recent data has shown they were aware of this. They created the epidemic. And those 50,000 lives were often lost early, not at the end of life, but at the prime of life, accounted for the fact that life expectancy in the United States dropped last year for the second year in a row, the first time in recorded history that that has happened. Well, there is another number that's really interesting that goes to that opioid question, and that is the labor force participation, especially of men between 25 and 55, and it has absolutely declined in direct ratio to the number of men who are on these pain meds. And I want you to hold that thought because we have to go take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, 
we're going to close out that conversation about the relationship of um, opioids and the labor force, and then we're going to ask the really important question, did the Affordable Care Act help or hurt? For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Dr. Robert Pearl talking about the problems in healthcare today, and then we're going to turn to some solutions. But we left our conversation before the commercial break um, around the opiate addiction crisis, and it is a crisis, uh, as Dr. Pearl pointed out, 50,000 lives lost last year. Do you understand that is almost the total of the 11 years that we were involved in Vietnam? Uh, It is 10 times the total deaths that we experienced in the Iraq war, which we all regret, and the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan. And it has reduced by about a full percent the labor participation rate among men in their prime earning years. And we need to talk about what the relationship is between those medications and the underlying um, depression, anxiety, dislocation, et cetera, of um, America's workers. What would you say, Dr. Pearl? So the opioid epidemic to me is just one of the biggest examples of how problematic the American healthcare system is and why patients are treated. I was reading about a small town in West Virginia, a few thousand people, mm-hmm. and received 10,000 prescriptions for opioids in one year. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a genius to figure out they're reselling it. And yet, there was no requirement of the manufacturers or the distributors or the pharmacists to report this to the agencies at the federal level that are responsible for uh, the drugs in this country. You know, what you see is essentially is people became addicted to the opioids. And by the way, the opioids are more expensive than heroin. That's why they switched then to heroin. And guess what? They overdosed on heroin. So the problems are there, Joyce. As a physician, it just so disturbs me. Or smoking. I mean, one in six Americans smoke. It's a leading cause, not just of lung cancer. We're talking about a major cause of cancer in the urinary system because it gets concentrated there. Cancer of the lips. The cancers are there. We promote it. We tax it. It is so broken. The opioids are broken. The pharmaceuticals are broken. But the context shapes the perception. We tell ourselves it's the greatest system. We talk about all the amazing advances And no one actually looks underneath to see whether they made a difference. Most other countries require that when you create a new drug, you've got to have two clinical trials showing that it is advantageous. Because by medical statistics, 5% of the time, a drug that is felt to be helpful is not going to be helpful, at least. So you've got to check it out before you administer it to patients. We don't do any of that. In fact, drug companies don't even have to demonstrate that the new drug that's priced 10 times higher is any better than the one that exists in the current marketplace. These are such powerful agents 
in the most financially profitable segment of the economy and the segment that donates the most to elected officials. I read something about half a uh, $500 million was spent in a question of marketing and a co- combination of political combina- uh, contributions in the first half of this year. Context. When you know you're going to run for election, when you know that the best way to get the money is from the pharmaceutical industry, it changes your perception about that industry, and it impacts it. And the people who pay the price is the United States patients. And I want to stress the overall United States economy, because when you siphon off that much money from education, from infrastructure, from training, from the kinds of things that we know add value in a community, you take it out of the public schools, what do you expect? Higher rates of addiction. And you get a lot of problems. And and so um, as we turn to the Affordable Care Act, that West Virginia story has an ironic end. Uh, Not only uh, when when it was finally um, discovered um, by someone in the DEA, it cost this longtime Department of Justice official his job. You can see him these days as a commentator on on MSNBC. Uh, that was how interested the DEA was in a pharmacy that was, in fact, a drug distributor uh, in the sense of illegal drugs. And so um, we're going to run out of time in this segment. We're going to have to go to commercial break here in a minute. But the question we're going to ask when we come back is, did the Affordable Care Act help or hurt? And that will lead us, we hope, to a discussion of what is going to be debated in California in the November election, and that is single-payer. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And so, Dr. Pearl, the question remains, if we start to pivot and look forward recognizing that the drug industry alone, forget all the other elements of healthcare, spends 10 times more on lobbying than any than the entire energy sector, which is vilified for its lobbying. Why don't we talk about how that influenced, you know, did the Affordable Care Act help or hurt? And how did those legacy interests influence that legislation positively or negatively? So when President Obama looked at American health care, he, like presidents ever since World War II, recognized that, number one, the system was broken, patients were being mistreated, and number two, the cost curve was escalating far more rapidly and the ability to pay the gross domestic product. And as a consequence, the United States was getting farther and farther into debt and having to move resources out of programs that were having a far more positive impact. He looked at three problems. Number one, coverage. One in every six Americans did not have health care coverage. Number two, cost. It was now, as you said, is now it had started around 4.5% of the GDP. 
and now out of a much larger GDP, it was approaching 18%. And number three, the quality that you highlighted at the start of the show, where the American quality was uh, lagging despite what people perceived about it. He looked at his, at his predecessors who had failed to be able to enact legislation, and he made a political decision to move forward very quickly on the coverage and very slowly around the cost and very slowly around the quality. And I would say that it's a very mixed outcome. In terms of the coverage, we lowered the uninsured rate for around 16 17% down to about 8 to 9%. We have the number. And as a physician, I believe strongly you can't get good medical care unless you have coverage. You're just not going to spend your money on the things that are going to make long-term importance, like prevention, unless you have the ability to pay for it, which was the coverage done. So from that standpoint, I think it's positive. The negative is I don't think it had very much impact on either the cost or driving up the quality. Small, yes, but not significant. In particular, I think the pharmaceutical world wasn't touched. The reasons you said, it's the fastest growing segment of the healthcare world. It had been under 10%. It's now moving towards 20%. In Kaiser Permanente, when I was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, our organization spent more money on drugs than on hospitalization. And wow. was rising at a rate that was almost twice as great. That's the problem that's there, and nothing in the legislation is an example touch that. Number two, we know that the fee-for-service system is broken. And there were, I'd say, slight pressures to move from a fee-for-service to a prepaid type system. But until you move there, it was insufficient is how I would probably label it. Similarly in technology, dollars were provided actually in an associated bill, the high-tech bill, but basically part of the same total uh, legislation to get every physician to purchase an electronic health record, but nothing was done to connect them all together. So having the information available every place. And there were other parts that we know. What we know is that across the United States today, physicians often don't do enough of any procedure in a year to be really good at it. When I asked the chiefs of OBGYN, two-thirds of whom in Kaiser Permanente were women, how many laparoscopic hysterectomies, taking out the uterus through a laparoscope rather than a big, long incision, you personally would demand the surgeon have done the year before? They said between two and three a month, 25 to 35 cases a year, half of the physicians in the United States doing the procedure do fewer than 10 a year. They could have done a lot more to change the context but it was a politically, I'd say, compromised bill. I don't want to say it was negative because we know from other administrations nothing happened. On the other hand, I think it's far short of what needed to happen and the problems that existed. The higher cost, the more rapidly rising cost, the lack of improvement in quality outcomes. We could be the best in the world again, Joyce. We should be the best in the world in healthcare. But the Affordable Care Act did not move us there fast enough. And my big fear 
is that essentially when a recession comes and, you know, then we're both in business, you can yep. never predict them, but they're somewhat inevitable. Many of the gains that actually have happened will disappear as people face the economic realities. I think that more aggressive action needed to happen, didn't happen, and still has not occurred. And so let's let's talk about you know we'll we'll talk let's talk about what I call the Marie Antoinette solution, which is the uh, siren song of single payer. Okay. There are two single-payer proposals in the California legislature, um, one of them endorsed by the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Gavin Newsom. The two solutions, one of them would make no changes in the distribution of health care, et cetera, but it would say that the maximum fee any doctor could charge would be the, Medicaid, the Medicare rate. And you'd have that would be the starting point, and you'd have to go uh, below that to make any changes. And the other, and of course, that creates a whole uh, can of worms for a bureaucracy to be developed. Um, and the other bill would simply say we'll have Medicare for all. You and I both, as as um, citizens and as um, and as business people, know that Medicare is not free. Um, but, uh, and the way in which the state, and that would double the state budget, but the way in which it's proposed to pay for it is to sweep up all the Medicaid dollars, all the VA dollars, and all of the Medicare dollars that are flowing into California and redistribute them through the population. So let me ask you a question. Since Larry Levitt of the Kaiser Family Foundation says single payer would work in California, do you think a government health care, based on what we know about the Affordable Care Act, based on what we both believe are the right answers for a more affordable and, and efficacious health care system, do you think a government take, uh, takeover of health care would solve the problem or just change the distribution model? And how would you feel about a system that would be run by California state employees dominated by the uh, Service Employee International Union and their bureaucracy, would that be more efficient and would it be culturally possible? My short answer is it will not work. That's the short answer. But I think understanding why it will not work uh, is very important to, uh, to, to recognize. First, you have to start with what exists today because a significant amount of health care in the United States is actually accomplished today under a state or federal government, depending upon if it's Medicaid or Medicare. California is an example. The reimbursement in Medicaid is 60% of the actual current cost. We're 48th in the nation out of 50 states in what we pay for the care. And what happens? It's almost impossible as a Medicare patient to get a physician or to get access to care, except in an emergency situation, which is why the use of emergency facilities go up so significantly. Medicare pays more. They pay about 90%. Most people accept Medicare payments today because of what's called the fixed cost to cover the capital of the hospitals and other facilities. It contributes to the other costs. But if you didn't have the commercial insurance that pays, by the way, about 120% of the actual cost, it would no longer work. As soon as you make it a single governmental solution, 
unless you outlaw private coverage, what's going to happen in the United States and in California is what's happening in every other country. The lines are going to grow for the government-offered programs, and what you're going to see is that people who can afford it are going to buy private insurance to cut the line. It's what happens in every country in which the government pays the cost and doesn't pay enough to cover it. It happens every place else. You have the so-called black market phenomenon where people who can afford it buy it, and now you create a second set of problems. That's the first thing. The second thing about it is I don't think there's any evidence that the government is able to more efficiently run a program, particularly in the context of what we just spoke about. It's the government that's prevented the solution to the pharmaceutical world, and so now how is the government going to solve that if the legislation prohibits them from acting on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries or, prevent, or is going to prevent the state from doing so? Now, how are they going to address this very rapidly progressive part? And finally, the idea that you're going to have, you know, the word Medicare for all, the question is what Medicare? There's two kinds of Medicare. There's fee-for-service Medicare. And there's going to be a prepaid capitated Medicare. If you're moving to fee-for-service Medicare for all, what you find is that the costs are going to go up. We've already said that. When physicians are reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, when hospitals are paid on a fee-for-service basis, the costs are going to go up. So I think that all of the savings are illusory. Yes, if you're only going to pay 90% of the dollar, you're going to lower your costs. But there's a second and a third order of consequence and i want to add one final piece because the funding that happens inside any system that is now impacted by a elected set of officials means that you're going to have increases and decreases depending upon which party which candidate which president which governor is sitting there now all of a sudden you're going to have tremendous disruption in a year that the state has problems and they cut back funding. We're seeing this in other states in the United States today where they can no longer afford to pay the things they have to pay, whether it's the coverage for their employees or whether it's the Medicaid equivalency or the, um, sitting in that particular state. You know, I think there is no there there as soon as you go beyond the first simplistic look at it. Now, let me back up to say, there is a problem in the American health care insurance system. It costs way too much. We spend 10% of our dollars processing claims and bills, and what we find is that the response is going to be to try to prevent the care. We see emergency rooms that are going to be charging more for people out of networks. We see all those crazy consequences from an economic way. So a single pay or a simplified payment mechanism would be very positive. More dollars could be spent on direct care. But giving that to the government, I can't imagine a less likely solution to be effective over time. And as I say, I think for the first year it will look good. And by year three or four, something very negative will have happened and the whole system will collapse and fall apart. I actually don't think it's going to pass legislation because of the reality of the cost. And the last estimate I saw is that it would cost the state of California nearly half a trillion dollars. 
to be able to implement this system. And you're absolutely right. It would cost the state of California half a trillion dollars. And they and, and it's a half a trillion dollars they don't have. And you're absolutely right about the distribution of funding right now where we spend we would need to double our education budget, which is the biggest in the nation, in order to get to parity with, let's say, New York or New Jersey in per-pupil spending. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's feasible, but but you and I both know, and we're going to run out of time again, so I'm going to... It's just one, one, one concept. One of the things I do write is a Forbes blog, and my Forbes blog is about surveys that I have sent out to subscribers to my monthly newsletter. So Robert Pearl, MD, there's a, a newsletter that I send out every month, and in that I ask people questions. And I ask them questions about their personal willingness to pay more for health care, not their own health care, but the health care of the rest of the state. And the overwhelming majority said we're not willing to do so. A single-payer system is a guarantee that taxes will go up significantly, and if people are willing to pay it, that's great. Remember, I'm a physician. I want everyone to have excellent health coverage with excellent quality outcomes. But the consequences after the first year or two is that you're going to see an escalation in cost, and the consequence is you're going to see an escalation in the tax bill. And again, at least based upon my readerships of my monthly newsletter, the overwhelming majority are unwilling to do that, and they've got to understand the connection of A and B. And I think on that note, I'm going to ask if I can prevail on you to come back one more time in, let's say, a month, and let's talk about how we could solve this problem. And in the meantime— I would love that choice. I would love it, and the hour just flies by, so thank you so much. Thank you. And in the meantime, you can go to Reimagine America— and do a search on healthcare and read about a place I'd like to start our next conversation. And that's a public option. And in the meantime, reimagineamerica.org, robertpearlmd.com, and we'll be back in a week. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org, join the forum. Donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.